0: And we're going to go through Acts chapter 26. It won't be that long. Remember, this is the final of five defenses made by Paul since this whole conflict happened where he was arrested, where a tumult or a melee took place regarding him. And, you know, he was arrested. It all started way back in chapter 21. What we're still dealing with now all started back in chapter 21. It's his fifth defense. The first was to the people themselves on the stairs leading into the fortress, remember? The second was before the Roman commander Lysias and the Sanhedrin. The third was Governor Felix. The fourth was Governor Festus. And now here in chapter 26 is number five, his defense before King Agrippa, which Luke records as the longest of the five defenses. And remember... This is a praisee. It's a praisee. In other words, Luke, who wrote Acts, does not give us the entire conversation. Rather, he points out and highlights some of what happened. That's what a praisee is. Okay? Why don't we stand for the, stand for prayer? And, uh, the title of my sermon is Paul before a king. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you. For this time that we have in your word. I ask and pray that you would help me to set it forth, that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would be glorified through our lives in the week ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, O oh God. May we be faithful and true to you. Keep us humble before you, desirous to seek your face, and to live in obedience to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. So verse 1 starts out by saying here in chapter 26, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Remember, Festus is there. Agrippa is there. Bernice is there. All the movers and shakers are there. All the elite are there. Many Roman magistrates have come. This is an elaborate pomp and circumstance gathering to hear what Paul has to say because King Agrippa's in town. So Agrippa says, you can speak for yourself to Paul, and Paul stretches out his hand, and the scripture says, answered for himself. Now, Paul motioning with his hand is a means of getting attention. Motioning with the hand is a means of getting attention. This would have been a normal habitual act by a seasoned street preacher, which Paul was. You remember back in 21 verse 40 when Paul's going up the stairs to the fortress under arrest and he asks the commander, Lysias, can I speak to the people? And he says, yes. It says that Paul motioned with his hand and the crowd got quiet. So this is a means of getting attention. He motioned with his hand in order to get their attention, and then he began to speak. Paul may have just been doing this out of habit because everybody was waiting for him to speak. They were looking forward to hearing him have to speak. What does this prisoner have to say? But he probably just did it out of habit as a seasoned street preacher. But we don't know for sure. Paul begins to speak, and he says in verses 2 and 3, we're in Acts chapter 26, He says in verses 2 and 3, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Paul says he is happy. He is glad. He's fortunate to be speaking to the king. He's a prisoner. He's in chains. His wrists are manacled. But he's happy. He's glad, he's fortunate to be speaking to the king. One scholar I read stated that Paul had spent, quote-unquote, two bleak years in prison, unquote. And having done time incarcerated for many months, due to my interposing at the doors of the death camps on behalf of the pre-born, I can tell you, your life is not bleak just because you're in prison. Your life is not bleak just because you're in prison. Wherever you are, you are in the Lord's hands. He uses you wherever you are, whether bond or free. Paul didn't view his life as bleak. He understood the providence and hand of God in his life, and so should we. The worst part of being in jail is simply being separated from your family. It is really the only real big downside because you know you're where God wants you to be. Paul had been speaking to those who visited him. He had lots of visitors. Paul spoke freely with his Roman guards, the lowest of the magistrates. I know he did. We know what kind of man he was. He was true blue Christian. He talked to those men about our Lord and about his word and rule. And Paul also wrote. When you're in jail, you got some serious time to think and some serious time to write. And Paul wrote. In fact, he wrote part of the New Testament while he was sitting in jail there for those two years. We know he wrote Ephesians. We know he wrote Philippians. We know he wrote Colossians. We know he wrote Philemon all while he was there. This is why we call those books the prison epistles. Because Paul was in prison when he wrote them. That is not bleak. That's not bleak. That's awesome. Wherever we are, God uses us. We're in his hand. We're his. Praise his holy name. Amen. The wicked don't understand that. They don't get it. That God uses his people even if wicked magistrates put them in jail. So Paul was happy to speak to King Agrippa because he knew that the king knew about Jewish thought and custom, unlike the Romans. Look what verse 3 says. He says, I'm a, he says in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. And he says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify, remember they weren't doing so, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul begins by talking about his Jewish credentials to King Agrippa, who knows all about Jewish customs and ways. He talks about the fact that he's born a Jew, that he's raised in Jerusalem, that he's a Pharisee. Saul is big to King Agrippa. And then Paul states in verses 6 and 7, he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain for this hope's sake. King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. For this hope's sake, this promise, I am accused by the Jews. Accused by them. And what was this promise that Paul was speaking of? It was the resurrection. Look at verse 8. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? This was the promise. that This was the hope that they had been waiting for. And that is why Paul is being accused by the Jews here at this time. Paul then immediately, lest he be seen as arrogant or self-righteous by Agrippa, talks about how he did not believe it himself, how he actually persecuted the Christians himself. Paul continues to appeal to this in various of his defenses, that he who once persecuted Jesus and the Christians now believes in Jesus. And it will lead up to his testimony, as we'll see here. Paul viewed his changed life by Christ as a huge matter in telling people how Jesus changes lives. He spoke about his changed life by Christ numerous times. So he spoke of this repeatedly, and so should we speak of how he changed us. It's big. It's important to do to share your testimony with others. So let's read verses 9 through 18 and see what Paul says here. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. By faith in Christ. Again, our testimony of how we came to know Christ is huge. It is a big deal. I plan on publishing this coming week on um, the website I got "How Jesus Changed My Life," which is just about my testimony about how Jesus changed my life. Um, because I found that people stop and listen to it, as I've shared it hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. Over my lifetime, we must declare to people what Christ has done in our lives when we speak to them. This is the third time Paul's testimony is set forth here in the book of Acts, what we just read. The first time it was in the third person and described by Luke. The next two, including this one, it was given in the first person by Paul himself. Sharing our testimony with people about how Jesus changed our life is a big deal. There's some differences in each of these three accounts. The one early on in Acts, um, the one in Acts 22, and then this one here in Acts 26. There's some differences in each of the three. Each one has things said in it, not said in the other. And that is not problematic. Why? Because each account has its own special context. Your audience matters when you speak to them. The setting matters when you speak to them. How much time you have matters when you speak to them. Circumstances of where you are sharing it even come into play. I've shared my testimony hundreds of times and it has never been the same, ever. I emphasize certain points about it or omit other points about it depending on who my audience is, depending on what the setting is, depending on how much time I have. When Paul shared his testimony last time, for example, in chapter 22, his audience was Jewish. So certain things were emphasized there, like Ananias who came to him after he was blinded, being a devout Jew held in good report by all Jews. Whereas in this account, you'll notice, Ananias isn't even mentioned. Why is that? Because here the audience is primarily Roman. And they would find those comments boring. Non-consequential. In chapter 22... His audience was primarily Jewish. You are not a robot. You are not an automaton. The four spiritual laws are following any little formula to point men to Christ can be boring and uninteresting to pagan men. They can't even understand what you're saying. You might as well be speaking Swahili. They're just like, what? Think about it. Before you came to know Christ and someone talked to you about Jesus and quoted scripture, it was like, Is this an Arab? (laughs) You know, it's like, can't even understand. What's this guy even talking about? Your testimony helps explain it and makes it more interesting. They can see when you speak of it, what he did in your life is real. They get quiet. Even in the most hostile situations, when I'm out ministering at a university or in public square, Somewhere, if I begin to share my testimony with someone, 99% of the time they go quiet. And they will listen for 10 to 15 minutes while I share my testimony. I kid you not. And you're explaining to them how Jesus changed your life. It changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. They see past what they had stereotyped you as, they see your humanity. That you're not this self-righteous person they judged you to be. That you're a human being, too. And that Christ radically transformed your life. Amen? So Paul talks to his audience about Jesus, who He is, how He has risen, about forgiveness of sin. You noticed all that. And he does it all in the context of how Jesus changed his life. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Therefore... King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was not disobedient to the heavenly vision of bringing this light to both the Jews and the Gentiles. But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Amen? Notice good works follow your faith in Christ. True faith in Christ always results in a changed life. The fruit of your faith, your repentance and your faith, is a changed life. Good works become evident within your life. You don't do good works to obtain God's acceptance. You do good works because you have obtained his acceptance. A huge, important distinction that we must remember. So he says in verse 21, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Okay? These reasons. Because he preached the gospel, and particularly because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the Jews wanted to kill him. And in verse 22, he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing, both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Help from God. When I read this verse, that stood out to me. Having obtained help from God. We can do nothing without God. You cannot live for God without God. He is the vine. We are the branches. We can do nothing without Him. We are utterly dependent upon Him. And He's the one who makes us faithful to the end. He's continued to do this. Paul's a much older man now since that happened 30 years earlier. And he said, God helped me to be faithful in what he had given me to do. God helped me. And he says, to this day, I stand witnessing to both small and great, and it's only because of Christ that he does, and it's only because of Christ in us that we're able to also. Ours is a prepositional faith in, by, through Christ Amen? You see that over and over again. It's because of Him that we're able to live faithful to what the Father has called us to. And I love this saying. Paul says to both small and great, we are to talk to all men about the Lord. We should not think so little of men that we view them as beneath us unworthy of hearing about our Lord, nor should we be so enthralled with great men that we fail to point them to our Lord. We fail to tell them what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. And Paul does that here. He faithfully expounds the Lord to these great men. Unlike most churchmen of our day who get in front of a TV camera or before a great man and falter in their presence... Paul wasn't taken up with their greatness. He knows all men are sinners and are in need of Christ. The churchmen of our day falter in the presence of great men and make excuses about our Lord's law and word. I've seen this countless times when it comes to the matter of homosex, but also many other areas of question being raised by pagan men. Watch Christian churchmen falter, and that is because they want to be liked by men rather than be faithful to our Lord. Whether men are small or great, we should be faithful to our Lord. We have a duty to love our neighbor, and you cannot truly love your neighbor unless you love Jesus first. My days over the last five years have been interesting in this regard. I talked to magistrates, Governors' men, lieutenant governors, attorney generals, all down through the ranks, sheriffs, legislators of all sorts. And you go from that and you see some guy, some lowly man, and the Lord moves on your heart to talk to him about the things of the Lord. We should be as comfortable before either in doing so, whether they are small or great. We should be comfortable in presenting Christ to men. It is what we do throughout our day as we move along. You should all have literature with you to point men to Christ. You're busy at times. The best thing you can do at that point is leave a piece of literature in their hand. Sometimes you have to change your plans. Ever find that to be true? God puts it on your heart. You share with someone, give them a piece of literature, you gotta go, they talk. You hook them. (laughs) You're fishing for men. (laughs) And then, next thing you know, 30 minutes have gone by, and your day has to be rearranged, right? And notice how Paul ends here. Look at verses 22 and 23. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets of Moses said, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul proclaims Christ to the magistrates, to the movers and shakers, to the elites of the city and the region. He declares the truth of God's gospel to them. And in verse 24, Festus finally can't take it anymore. And he interrupts with a loud voice. It says, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Understand, Festus was a pagan man. What Paul is saying seems crazy to him. And so he says, you're beside yourself. You're mad. Festus had no repentant heart. Paul's words seemed like gibberish to him, like simple madness. But Paul does not flinch in the face of this. Listen to me now. Look how he responds in verse 25. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. He is as cool as a cucumber in the situation he finds himself in. Most churchmen in our day couldn't fathom being in such a situation. In chains, in a hostile setting, publicly rebuked by a magistrate, they would simply vaporize, fold into a fetal position and pee on themselves. That is how most churchmen in our day would respond. But Paul is cool under fire. Notice what he says. I am not mad, tit for tat. But speak the words of truth and reason. Christianity, brothers and sisters, is a reasonable faith. The very words of God are truth and reason. The very words of God are truth and reason. Remember what I said in my sermon entitled Some Thoughts on Science and Christianity a few months ago? Here's what I said in part in that sermon. Listen to me now. I said, now, those who embrace and promote science are filled with arrogance. How do I know? I spend much time at the university and with talking to people, and I have found it to be so. They ridicule Christianity for being wrong and having done evil and brag about how they have embraced science, as though science is never wrong or has never done evil. They claim that science is rational and faith is irrational and utter absurdity which only the least objective person could proffer. Science has often been irrational. Look what it's been like in America under the guise of science for the last few months. Science has often been irrational. And faith is full of rational thought and reason. Faith is not irrational, nor without reason. In fact, reason is often part of what brings men to faith. And this is why the Scripture commands we are to love God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. Ours is a faith based in truth and reason. And Paul says so plainly right here in Acts chapter 26, verse 25. And then in verse 27, Paul does the unthinkable. He actually asks the king a question, which isn't done. When you're a prisoner, you're the one being questioned. You don't do questioning of your questioners. It just is not done. He does the unthinkable. And he says to Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe, he says. He questions the king. He turns everything on its head. The questioned becomes the questioner. Agrippa or Festus were to be doing the questioning, not Paul. The magistrates and the movers and shakers all gathered to hear Paul. The Romans were well known for their pomp and circumstances. They were all decked out in their attire or station and office. And though all the pomp and circumstance that was mustered to show the eminence of Rome and the inferiority of Paul... The short Jewish guy standing there with manacles on his wrist. The Lord turns it all on its head. The gospel is proclaimed to all in the midst of that situation. Amen? Then Agrippa says to Paul in verse 28, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. I'm sure it was his sin that kept him. Remember his awful sin that I talked about in the last sermon of King Agrippa? that he wouldn't become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But we know this was God's providence. God wanted Paul to go to Rome, to testify for him there, in chains. And so off to Rome he would go. And our last two chapters will deal with his trip heading to Rome, which is quite eventful as you will see. I want to simply finish this sermon by saying what I said last week in my sermon. And that is this. When we faithfully serve Christ in the earth, things this odd happen to us. When we faithfully serve Christ in the earth, things this odd happen to us. What a life. Amen? What a life. Faithfully serve Christ. It's not boring. If you're bored in your Christianity, if you think, oh, that religious stuff, i got to go sit there, blah, blah, blah. If that's what you think, you're not living for Jesus. Because if you live for him, it's exciting. It's eventful. You have no idea what's going to happen next. And it can be downright odd. Crazy the things he brings you into, the people, the circumstances, it's amazing. So I encourage you, walk close to our Lord, live faithful to him in these days. It's important that you do so. And watch what he does with your life. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and close in prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we've had in Your Word, I ask and pray that You would take what was preached here today as even as it wasn't set forth as clearly or greatly as it could have been. Lord, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, work within the hearts and minds of the hearers. Father, I just ask and pray that You put a deep hunger in each of us. That we would do right by You in our individual lives and that we would do right by you within our home lives. Help each man here, O God, to do right by you and to open your word to his wife and to the children and to sit and discuss the things of you, to conduct family worship together within the home, O Lord. Help each woman to be a helpmate, an anchor in the home, all the many things that she has to do as a helper to her husband, a nurturer of the children, and on down the list. Lord, we just ask and pray that each child would love you, would have a true hunger for you, would want to live for you, that their parents would see it and that they would nurture it in them. Lord, may we do right by you in the days ahead, live faithful to you. May we proclaim you from the housetops and not hide this light under a bushel. May we not fear man, may we fear you. And may we live right by you. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. May Christ be praised, Father. Amen. You can be seated, and we're going to take communion at this time. You can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion, as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. If you're a Christian, you can feel free to take partake with us. You do not have to be a, a member of this church to do so, but you do need to be a believer in Christ as only believers are to observe his table. And the Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, and he said in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the apostle says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So, at his table, there's two elements, the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood, the bread representing his body, and nothing else, showing that it is through Christ alone whereby God accepts us. There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my good works, or a list of all my holiness. No. My holiness that I demonstrate, the good works that I do, those things are the result, the fruit, or the evidence of my saving faith in Christ. In other words, I don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, I do them because I have obtained His acceptance. Amen. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian five seconds or 55 years, you can always only meet with the Father through Jesus. And this time at his table reminds us of that important fact. So we refer to what we're talking about right now within clerical circles as liturgy. And I know a lot of um, Protestant churches, and particularly a lot of non-denominational ones, really not even, even a lot of denominational ones. Do not observe the Lord's table every week. You understand that. They do it once a month. They do it once every six months. Some even do it once a year. I view this liturgy as massively important to observe his table every week because it reminds us how we meet with the Father. And man in all his religiosity needs to be reminded of this great salvation through Christ that it's only because of what he did when he shed his blood at Calvary that gives us right standing with God. If you meet with the Father on that basis, you will experience his presence because you will commune with him, you will have fellowship with him, you will meet with him. If you try to climb into his presence some other way, like Jesus plus some things I did, yeah, God won't commune with you on that means through that basis. You must meet with him through what he has established, which is through Christ. And so this liturgy is so incredibly important. It's been shown to be a part of Christianity from the very foundation. Everything we know from church history is they always did this every week. So I hope this never becomes boring to you. Remember the Jews of old when they were out and they got bored with manna? And you know... Jesus talked about how he's the bread of life, was a reference to the manna, right? You get all that symbolism and everything? Yeah. They got tired of the manna. I hope you don't get tired of this, (laughs) talking about what Christ has done in our life. It's so important, and that's why Christian men made it a standard part of a service. You know we pattern our church services after the early church. You do know that. They would have a time of hymn singing. They would have a time of the preaching of the word, of prayer, and they would always observe the Lord's table. Those four elements all the time. And we follow in that here. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It's needed and necessary stuff for our lives. You get fed here, hopefully, so that you're equipped to go out and do the work of the ministry, to cause no small stir for our Lord, to confront the evils, tyrants, and idols of our age, and point men to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hugely important. And this is all part of it. Knowing Jesus and relating with the Father on the basis which he has established is huge to it. When we meet with the Father on the basis of Jesus, God imparts to us a supply of his spirit, Paul says. I believe it's in the book of Ephesians. A supply of the spirit. The spirit is the one who enables us to live as Christian men and women. You do understand that. As I said in the sermon, you cannot live for God without God. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not... I've been a Christian for 35 years, so I'm a shoe in It's Christ in us who's the hope of glory. Amen? This is a big deal. And so we observe it every week that we gather, or almost every week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word and to meet. And Lord, all the getting used to everything and all this stuff. Lord, I just ask and pray that in spite of it all, you did good work in each one's heart and mind and that we would find this a good place for us to meet. And when you're ready to move us to another, we'll know where to go. And Lord, we just thank you for this place to meet. We thank you for the much softer chairs. We thank you, oh God, that they're actually decent chairs that don't have like a curved, weird back and all that weird stuff that was at the other place. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you use this congregation for good. Lord, we ask and pray that each one here, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, they would be used by you this week to tell someone of you, whether by giving them a piece of literature or holding a conversation with them or living out Jesus in front of them. And Lord, I just ask and pray that we would be living epistles to a lost, dying, rebellious world. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. We give thanks to you, Lord. Blessed is your holy name, O God. We rejoice in you. Worthy is your holy name. Father, you know we are a needy people. We are in need of you. Lord, may our hearts hunger for you. May we take time, each as an individual, to read your word, to petition you in prayer to pour out our hearts before You. Lord, I ask and pray that You would continue to build Your kingdom in each person here's life, that they would grow in the faith. We rejoice in You, O God. I'll praise and honor unto You. May we be Your faithful ambassadors, Your witnesses, Your living epistles in this earth, pointing men to You and to Your rule, O God to your great salvation. And may we see men one to you, O Lord, in the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming.